0: This program is brought to you by Personallifemedia.com. This is Part 2 of a two-part podcast. If you'd like Part 1, you'll find it at Personallifemedia.com. Welcome,
1: to Money, Mission, and Meaning, Passionate Work, Purpose at Play, where we explore how we can integrate our personal values and professional skills to create pleasure and profit in the business of life. I'm your host, Mark Michael Lewis of RationalSpirituality.com, author of Relation Dancing, Consciously Creating What You Really Want in Your Relating, and The Key is in the Darkness, Unlocking the Door to a Spiritual Life. This week we return for the second half of our interview with Adam Kutz, a meditation teacher and practitioner who's worked with literally hundreds of individuals and groups to guide them to discover the experience that we might call meditative awareness that's at the heart of what it means to be human. So join us as we explore this topic, continue our conversation, and discover the possibility that comes from simply being who you are.
2: When a person is doing formal meditative practice, it's not the time to review life. You might have insights come up for them. They might have creative ideas. But I agree with with some of my teachers that talk about that's really not the time to pursue those uh, thought forms that come up. But afterwards, right afterwards, oftentimes the mind is very open. You're still present to those insights. And I think writing those things down or just insights that a person has about themselves, it's a really great time to do that. In a meditative posture, we're held upright by gravity. We're held in place to balance, not to muscular effort. We find a balanced posture that we can hold for a certain period of time. And a really good meditative posture involves a really upright spine that holds you up and then the rest of the flesh of your body just relaxes off that spine. I think that's a good metaphor for the uh, balance between religion and spirituality, the lived experience and um, having a tradition. I would say in the Buddhist tradition, there's a fair amount of disagreement about the role of sexuality on the spiritual path. Much of Buddhism in Asia, as I understand it, it, it is pretty um, traditional. Part of the Eightfold Path is right action, and part of right action is right sexuality, not harming through sexuality. For some traditional teachers, it just means no sexuality outside of procreation within a marriage. So you, you'll find strands like that in Buddhism. I mean, I've heard it said that the current Dalai Lama has said homosexuality is inappropriate.
1: So, Adam, welcome
2: back. Great to be back. Had a great time with our uh, with our conversation last week.
1: Excellent. Well, at the end of our last conversation, we were talking about uh, how the experience of meditation can usefully be uh, like and unto experience of what we might call enlightenment, or even how it relates to uh, the idea of God. Yeah. And yeah. the the idea of practice and path. On the on the way to that, and uh, you didn't have a chance to answer part of the idea where I had suggested that meditation can be uh, somewhat like uh, lifting weights, where you discover yeah. muscles where you didn't <laughs> know them before, and I wanted to give you a chance to get into that. Uh, if you could talk. Great, a thanks, about... Mark. Yeah.
2: Well, I talked last week about how uh, there's two aspects to traditional Buddhist meditative uh, practice. And one is focusing the mind, intentionally choosing an aspect of reality to focus on and let go of all else. And the other one is having the mind accord with exactly what is, being uh, mindful of the nature of what you could call phenomenological experience or um, the different sensory experiences that a human being can have. And I would say that um, the whole metaphor of lifting weights is more... Accurate for uh, the the first practice. If a person is watching the breath and let letting go of all distractions, there's a way in which it's a stupid, repetitive, boring exercise, like playing piano scales or like like uh, lifting weights. The point of lifting weights is not lifting weights. The point is to uh, really have a healthy, strong body. The point of playing piano scales is not to get good at playing piano scales. You know, that might have its charms, but the point is to really play beautiful Chopin. And the point of watching the breath, similarly, it's a repetitive exercise. It can be boring. It can seem pointless. Or any other uh, meditation that focuses the mind by letting go of distraction. The point is really to have a mind that's um, pliable, that's powerful, that's able to um, intentionally choose what uh, what you want to pay attention to. Plato talked about, uh, the the Greek philosopher, how the human mind is like a sailing ship where they've locked the captain and the navigator in the hold. And the sailors don't know how to steer the ship, they don't know how to navigate, and they can't decide where the ship is going. And so it goes one way towards one island, it kind of goes a goes a few miles towards that island, it goes a few miles towards a different island... That's often how uh, the human mind is. And shamatha, uh, focus practice, um, uh, the practice of intentionally cultivating a sharp mind, a mind that's able to uh, focus on one thing intentionally, is the opposite of that. And so it often is like lifting weights. It often is uh, steady work. However, I would say uh, there is an aspect of work to Vipassana practice, although less of one. It's more... It's more um, letting reality choose you rather than you intentionally choosing what you're going to pay attention to. However, I would say with both uh, both focus practice and mindfulness practice, there's a way at which there are times in formal meditation practice where it feels like work, where it feels like um, I'm up against my edge, it's hard, I need to push myself, it's it's difficult to push through and really meditate. And then there are other times where, from my own experience, living as a monk in monasteries and having a 20-year practice at home, it just feels really grooving and it's easy and the, the practice kind of carries you along. And uh, it just sort of, uh, you know, like in the popular imagination meditation, you're just sort of sitting there grooving with the cosmos. The Buddha... Had a, a student that came to him and said, "You know, I'm kind of confused about this meditation thing." And the Buddha said, "Well, weren't you a lute player? You know, which is a stringed instrument like a guitar. Weren't you a lute player when you were uh, a professional musician before your monk?" And, and the uh, monk said, "Yes, sir, I was." And he said, "You know, with a lute string, sometimes you need to tighten the string to have it sound true and on tune, and sometimes you need to loosen the string." And the lute player said, "That's exactly so." And the Buddha said, well, so it is in our meditative practice. Sometimes we need to tighten the string. We need to work a little. We need to make a little bit of effort. We need to kind of, you know, lift up our spine a little bit more. We need to be a little more firm with ourselves. Hey, I'm not sitting here thinking and vegetating and just wondering what's for lunch. I actually am meditating. I'm actually going to wash my breath. I'm going to be a little more rigorous with myself. Other times we need to put a little more slack into the string. We need to relax a little. We need to let our belly out. We need to just say, hey, I'm just trying to notice what is. I'm not trying to regulate the breath. I'm just trying to notice the breath as it is. I'm, I can be a little bit more relaxed. One more thing, if I may say about this. Sometimes in the popular imagination, people think of Buddhism or Zen as, hey, it's all good. You've heard this phrase, right? Like, like
1: Don't worry, be happy.
2: Yeah, just everything's okay. Like in the, you know, I think uh, sometimes, you know, in the 60s or even to this day, people think of Zen, it's all Zen, right? And I think I think that's because if you look at the history of Buddhism, there were monks who were meditating 20 hours a day, and the other one would say, I meditate 21 hours a day, and they knew all the ancient scriptures, and they were super hardcore monks, and the master would say to them, he'd say, you know, relax, there's nothing you can do or not do to to get enlightened yeah. It's all good, and that phrase comes from Zen poetry, by the way. It's all good. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. there's a there's a famous Zen poem where he says, you know, uh, flowers in the springtime, you know, falling leaves in the in the fall. If your mind is clear, then whatever season it is, it's all good. But on the other hand, though, that same master would find the, the common people sitting there smoking opium and playing mahjong, and he'd say, you know, get off your lazy butts. You need to meditate. You need to sweat blood. You need to work harder. You know, just, don't just do whatever Ooh. it is. It's not all perfect. You actually need to stop stop your opium smoking, stop your gambling, and, and uh, you know, engage in a spiritual path. So the same master might say to some people, hey, Relax. Put a little more slack in your string, and other people he might say, "Hey, tighten up your string." It all depends on what the person needed. So I think there's ways in which meditation is like lifting weights, and other ways in which it's like relaxing and just grooving with the cosmos. And it all depends on a person's spiritual path. Different, different directions are appropriate for different people at different times. <laughs>
1: so you I, I love you. the uh, yeah exactly. I lo- I love the idea of a of a string. Yeah, being yeah. in tune yeah and yeah. and there's this it 's this balance it 's uh you know this you you 're describing this effort you know on the one hand and effortlessness on the other, and it 's not about going towards either extreme it 's about the balance between them so that this so that the string is in tune and it, and as i as I think about that and I experience it as I imagine a chord that 's out of tune where it 's just yeah. not on it 's like there's this uh, it, this feeling I get is uh, and I when it comes back into tune, it's like the vibrations align for my ears, which has my body align, and yeah. there's this rightness yeah. about it. And, and we and all know actually, people that we all know people
2: that are a little slack, you know, that we might say, oh, you know, it, it would be healthy for that person to tighten up, actually get a job and quit smoking, whatever they're smoking. Yeah. <laughs> and then we all know people that are a little high strung. Their, their string is a little too taut. And we'd be like, man, you know, you're going to burst a vein. And we all know times in our own life where we're a little too tight and times in our own life where we're a little too slack. So finding that balance, you know, it's, it, it's, um, it's, it, it requires attention. It requires paying attention.
1: Okay, well, so that, that brings up uh, another kind of question, which is, you know, what's the point of this? I know, I know for myself, when I first started my meditation practice,
3: yeah, um, back yeah.
1: when I was in college, I used to meditate, and I was in the bliss stage that you were talking yeah, about, right? Yeah. And I'd have these fantastic experiences, and I'd think, oh, wow, this is really going to change things. And then literally five minutes after i had gotten up from sitting down,
3: yeah, it was yeah. gone.
1: Right, the whole experience was gone, and I'd come back the next day and I'd sit down, and it's like, what happened to this experience? It's like I went into this world, and I got really clear, and then it disappears, and yeah. then through time, I didn't even have the bliss. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm sitting, and I'm going, okay, I'm sitting, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing my focus meditation because I was doing focus meditation on a mantra at the time.
3: Yeah. And. Yeah.
1: And then through time, I I went through all of these different experiences in my meditation, but the thing that I kept finding was that when I left the meditation mat, most of the experience would disappear. And I found for myself that I began taking up a practice where when I would get up from the meditation mat or when I would uh, stop my walking or, or my practice at the time, I would set aside some time to actually do some writing or it might be yeah. that's when I would communicate with someone because I had kind of, you know, I gotten out of my anger and I was in a really clear space. and So I would make plans or I would do communication. And I guess, you know, from a real practical perspective, how does a, a meditation practice help you in your real life? In your in yeah. kind of your yeah. daily life?
2: That's an excellent question, Mark. Yeah, it's an excellent question. That's really interesting. I didn't know all that about you even though we've been friends for a while. Um, very interesting. I I do think that, um, as you say, when a person is is doing formal meditation, when a person sits down and says, okay, for this 15 minutes or this hour, I'm going to do this formal meditative practice, it's not the time to review life. You might have insights come up, a person might have insights come up for them, they might have creative ideas, but I agree with with some of my teachers that talk about that's really not the time to pursue those those uh, thought forms that come up. But afterwards, right afterwards, oftentimes the mind is very open. You're still present to those insights. Hey, I sh- you know, be really good for me to apologize to that person. Here's here's an outline of a short story I could write. Here's um, a way that I could improve things at work. And I think writing those things down, or just insights that a person has about themselves, "Oh, I noticed that I, my mind tends to do this. It's a really great time to do that. In terms of the uh, benefits of meditation, what real-world practical benefits do they make? I think people generally find that um, in the short term, sometimes there's increased agitation, there's increased sensit- hypersensitivity, there's um, restlessness. There's also, it's a short that term. That sounds like fun. No, well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like I said about digging. Sometimes, you know, you hit a hard level of rock. And I think um, in the short term, sometimes people have difficulty that that comes up for them. It's, it's sort of like if you're on a hill and you want to get to the mountain, you need to walk through the valley. Another analogy I might make is if you have a water system in a house, and in some of the back channels there's a lot of rust and algae, you can't really, if if you flush the whole water system of the house with a whole lot of high-pressure water, that rust analogy will be flushing, you know, you'll see it coming out of the spigots. And you'll say, oh, what, you know, this is horrible. I'm trying to clean out the water system, and here this rust analogy is coming through. Well, it's a good sign. It means that you have some black channels that formerly uh, you weren't, we're even aware of what was festering back there, but when you flush out the whole system, out comes the rust analogy. And it only lasts for a while, and eventually your whole system is clean. So it is with meditation. As you flush out the old back channels, sometimes weird agitated stuff comes through. But in the long term, even though the local fluctuations are up and down, you might feel more agitated in a given week or month, the mind gets clearer, it gets calmer, your heart, uh, people tend to find that their heart is more open, they're more patient, They feel more of a sense of luminous goodness to life. They feel more of a sense of kind of uh, their natural intelligence and clarity of thinking shines through. There's less of a tendency towards addictiveness, more of a tendency towards just being at peace without addictive rushes. Um, People have um, more intuitive insight into the nature of things. All sorts of good things can happen. And as one of my teachers says, uh, if... If a person isn't really clear what the benefit is in a meditation practice, one thing to try is meditate every day for three months and then don't meditate for a week and see how that week goes. And in my own experience, I find in experiments like that, typically that week is is agitated. I feel a little panicked. You know, it's like I, I notice how much the meditation gives me a feeling of spaciousness, patience. Um, ability to kind of deal with one thing at a time, ability to give my full attention to people when talking to them. So, sometimes it's hard to see the benefits of meditation, and sometimes in the short term, things get worse before they get better. But in the long term, having a more spacious mind, being more in touch with spiritual source, clearing out the impurities in our heart, mind, and soul, those can't help but bring all sorts of blessings to a person's life that... um, the longer one practices and the more sincerely one practices, the more that uh, one finds that, that these are present. I would say one other thing, which is that, um, you know, you talked about daily life, and I know a lot of this, this show is about um, the way one makes a living. And there's, a, there's a, a tradition in Buddhism of practice out in daily life. Like, one of the great 20th century masters that many American uh, Buddhist teachers studied with was a Thai master named Ajahn Chah. And if I understand correctly, in Ajahn Chah's monastery, there wasn't much formal sitting practice. A lot of what people did is they were mindful while cleaning the toilets, while, uh, you know, chopping weed, or I, I don't know exactly what the nature of the work was. While sweeping the courtyard. And there's a way in which we can find... Mindfulness practice while working on a computer, while riding uh, the subway on the way to work. And um, I think the Buddhist tradition says, practice out in everyday life, being mindful, being aware, being aware of the breath, being aware of the mind, while walking down the street. It helps support formal meditation practice first thing in the morning on the cushion, and vice versa. The stronger person practices on the cushion, the more they're able to bring that during a boring meeting at work, or while eating lunch, so uh, I think that um, I think that there's many opportunities in daily life. Waiting in the doctor's office is a great time to check in with how does my body feel? What's my what's the texture of my thoughts? Uh, riding in a vehicle, as long as you're not the one driving, great time to check in. <laughs> uh, playing sports, you know, people can bring mindfulness to the practice of playing sports. Both going running, so I think that. Um, formal uh, daily practice or regular practice, weekly practice, can translate to daily life and um, being more mindful in daily life really lubricates and facilitates the power and the clarity of, of, um, of uh, regular sitting practice on a meditation cushion.
1: As, as you were saying that, it, it reminded me of something we said in the first uh, show we were talking about really uh, experiencing the texture of pain or going so deeply into pain yeah. that you broke through to the other side into something beautiful and this yeah. bringing yeah. mindfulness to the activities of our daily life. It, you know, from one perspective, it's like, okay, that way I can meditate more. But from the other perspective, it's really so that I can get the texture and the depth of this experience in daily life, kind of like the blade of grass, that as you really notice it and recognize its beauty, that it transports you into this profound understanding of the kind of miraculous nature of life and consciousness. And as as I was listening, I, this phrase came to my mind, which is kind of like uh, that uh, meditative awareness or the spiritual um, relationship with your daily life is kind of an acquired taste. It sounds mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. something that is like the more you taste it, the more you realize how good it tastes, and the more yeah. you want yeah. it. So, yeah, what, yeah. well, Go on, I, I want I want to begin to switch gears into into more, uh, shall we say, political topics in just right. a little bit. But we need to take a break for our sponsors. So I'm Mark Michael Lewis. This is Money, Mission, and Meaning, and we're talking with meditation teacher Adam Kutz. and we'll be right back.
0: Listen to Living Green, effortless ecology for everyday people, a weekly online audio program featuring champions of sustainable living at personallifemedia.com.
1: And we're back with meditation, meditation teacher Adam Kutz. So, Adam, we've been talking a lot about the kind of the internal experience and the, the lived experience of meditation and the Buddhist practice that you're uh, teaching and that you uh, work to cultivate in your own life. Now, there's a lot. I think it's difficult to talk about religion at the beginning of the 21st century and spirituality without uh, it Bringing up the context of the political challenges that we're facing in the in the Middle East and Israel and Iraq and uh, even in the United States, the uh, religious attempt to kind of bring creationism back into the schools uh, under the rubric of uh, intelligent design, mm. and I, I want to I want to ask you, how does your understanding of meditation and your understanding of um, cultivating conscious awareness fit in with uh, kind of the more national and international political scene in terms of how people deal with religion in general and how religion at that level relates to the kind of things that you're talking about?
2: That's a big subject, Mark. Yeah, fascinating question.
1: I think uh, in America...
2: You, you could say wherever Buddhism has gone, it has morphed. It has uh, grafted itself onto traditional, um, traditional or uh, indigenous religious thought. So in in Tibet, Tibetan Buddhism actually shows a lot of aspects of the uh, pre-existing shamanic tradition called Bon. Um, you could say Chinese Zen has a lot of uh, similarities with Taoism and Japanese Zen with Shintoism. So, so it is in America that we would find that much of Buddhism has connected with or made an alliance with left-wing politics and uh, humanistic psychology. So, in America, you, you know, I think Buddhism is often seen as a con- countercultural thing, uh, being a being aligned with uh, equality or or uh, sort of a non-religious re- religion. I, I think many of the fellow Buddhists that I've met in monasteries are sort of refugees from religion. They didn't like Judaism or Catholicism. They found it too patriarchal or too traditional. So they, um you know, they turned to Buddhism because Buddhism could more be what what they wanted it to be, and they could they could more live out their uh, political ideals. I think, though, in in traditional Asia, there's some. Buddhists who see it that way. There was a great uh, Thai master in the 20th century, Buddha Dasu, What was his name? Um, yeah, I think Buddha Biku was his name. And he wanted to turn Thailand into a socialist state, and that was his political orientation. However, I, I found it really eye-opening to read a book called Zen at War, and it talked about how, especially the Rinzai Zen masters, had very much supported the Japanese uh, imperial efforts in the... Um, in the... Uh, in the uh, imperial era when they were at, you know, when they conquered Korea and Taiwan and went to war with uh, China and up to Pearl Harbor and how they would say these things that are just shocking to the modern ears. They're very nationalistic, very, you know, almost racist. Um, And so I think it's helpful to, to realize that um, Buddhism can mean all sorts of different things that, that there's no absolute political alignment that Buddhism has. Um, there's some aspects of Buddhism that, to, to the American ears, would seem very pretty left-wing. The idea of compassion, the idea of, you know, getting rid of rituals, religious rituals. Get, you know, I think the Buddha was pretty much against the caste system. In, in modern India, many of the untouchables have converted to Buddhism. They, they're like, we can't win in Hinduism, we're going to be Buddhists. But it's also a religion, and it definitely stands for the authority of the elders. It stands for... Um, taking responsibility for self. It, it stands for being willing to do hard work and not... Uh, there, there's aspects of Buddhism that you could also say are right-wing. So I think it doesn't really map that easily to the American political spectrum or how we would think of things. I would say this, that um, there's a there's a, uh, a psychologist named Marshall Rosenberg who has invented a school of um, personal growth called nonviolent communication. And I, you know, I've talked with Marshall some, and he, ex- he told me that he explicitly drew a lot of the principles of nonviolent communication from Buddhism. And the idea with NVC is that you really uh, you sit down in dialogue with with people, and you really you really get to the point where you understand the people's feelings and needs. And it's kind of uh, hard to encapsulate in a nutshell, but it's a way of communicating such that genuine dialogue is fostered. I know Marshall Rosenberg travels all over the world, and he works with warring groups in Colombia and, and Israel-Palestine and, you know, the Balkans and all over America. He, he deals with groups in conflict. I have tremendous respect for what he does, and to my mind, he is a paragon of, uh, of Buddhism in action, of um, bringing, bringing uh, sort of the, the essence of the mindfulness experience, of the uh, meditative experience, out into uh, political action, into people uh, people in conflict, uh, people's verbal speech, developing the, the idea of how a person on a cushion ideally is harmonizing with their own experience and finding a depth there and a richness there and really getting to the heart of the matter, and there's a certain... Liberation or unhooking from suffering that happens there, Marshall has developed a technology of bringing that into interpersonal verbal communication that I have tremendous admiration for. And I do just want to underline what I said before. You know, Buddhism is a religion, and there's a lot of tradition to it. And I think sometimes what I see is um, that... The way it's translated into West is in a very uh, counterculture, groovy kind of way, and uh, it's not—it's not my take as to always how the source religion is, and that there are left-wing aspects to it, there are right-wing aspects to it, and ultimately, the spiritual experience is beyond both those categories and um, transcends and includes them both.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, one of one of the ways that I think about meditation is that meditation is the ultimate practice of, let's say, a a Buddhist tradition or a more contemplative tradition without the dogma. So without the beliefs of how the world is or um, who's right, who's wrong, it's really about how do I get in touch with my own experience? How do I learn to be at peace with who and what I am? Such that I can then act in the world in a way that's harmonious, that allows, uh, that furthers other people's development and that furthers my own development, kind of yeah. this win-win yeah. synergistic way. And uh, I think, I think the idea of the religion and the meditation can create a whole series of problems. How in your classes, you know, you teach an eight-week meditation course that people have gotten a lot of value from. How how do you address the difference between, say, the practice and the beliefs of religion, and what mm-hmm, do you think about mm-hmm. the belief side of it and how it fits into a practice?
2: Uh, this is a big question.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm asking you the tough ones. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's a good question. Well... You know, I've had a few students that are uncomfortable with the religious aspects of Buddhism, but I feel like it's, you know, there are people, I would say Eckhart Tolle is something of an example of this, definitely John Kabat-Zinn, who's written some best-selling books, who take the mindfulness of Buddhism and they present it uh, stripped of the religious context. When I teach, though, you know, in, in, re- in uh, respect to the lineages and respect to my teachers, I definitely teach it in an explicitly Buddhist context. And I think most people come to my class being comfortable with that. I would say that any religion is definitely going to have a certain amount of dogma. And, you know, when I've been a monk, there's times where it feels suffocating to me, the the, uh, the heaviness of Buddhism, the tradition. And there's times where I've rebelled against it. But I also have seen, there's ways in which some of the monasteries I've been to seem old-fashioned, and they seem not willing to fully open their mind, and they seem a little attached to Buddhism as opposed to being a Buddha. But then there's other ways in which sometimes I have rebelled against the traditions or seen them as archaic, and what was really happening, I I realized later, was I was too immature to actually understand the point of the tradition. And there were aspects of Buddhism that seemed stuffy or dead or oppressive that years later I realized were the most beautiful things that were really there for my own happiness, and I just couldn't see it. There are many aspects of Buddhism, mm-hmm. the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Twelvefold Chain of Dependent Co-Arising, many of these buddhist Buddhist teachings okay. that when I first encountered them, I was like, well, that's boring old philosophy. And now, 20 years into my practice, it seems so powerful and so rich and so... Um, Really, they just seem as real as as saying that the sky is blue. They just seem like yes, that's that's or saying that, you know, if you want to eat lunch, you got to kind of go and chop some chop up some food and cook it, and that's how you get lunch for yourself, or go order it. There's steps to take to make to get lunch in front of you, and so there are steps to take to be spiritually happy. So there's things that it's just taken me time to really realize the value of, and I want to say that you know in the in a meditative posture, in a good meditative posture, we're held upright by gravity, by. Uh, we're, we, uh, we're held in place through balance, not through muscular effort. We find a balanced posture that we can hold for a certain period of time. And a really good meditative posture involves a really upright spine. You know, let's say you're sitting cross legged on the floor. The upright spine uh, holds you up, and then the rest of the flesh of your body just relaxes off that spine. Your arms relax, your belly relaxes, your face relaxes. And um, I think that's a good metaphor for the, the, the uh, balance between religion and spirituality, the lived experience and um, having a tradition. The traditional aspects of religion, I find, are like that spine. There are certain hard, rigid structure that hold you upright, that hold you um, that hold you up against aspects of yourself you wouldn't otherwise want to encounter. And yet, the lived experience of religion, it, it does come from the Christ within, from the Buddha within, from, from your moment-by-moment truth. And that's like the relaxed belly. It's like the relaxed face. It's like the shoulders relaxed. It's like, hey, whatever's true, whatever's deeply true about life, universe, and your own internal depths... That's really your guru. That's really what's teaching you. That's really what's shining forth and informing your spiritual path. So I think in the modern world, it's, it's traditional to say, I, I have so many friends that say this, I'm spiritual but not religious. And I think something gets lost in that. I think tradition. you know, ideally a religion is a way of codifying and mm-hmm. mass producing the spiritual experience. And yes, something gets lost in that, and yes, commonly, it does become dogma. I mean, we see that only too well in the modern world. You know, terrorism and fundamentalism and all sorts of ways that religion can become destructive. But I also think that, you know, we need a tradition. We need the lineages. We need practices. We need teachings. Um, and that's the, that's the upright spine. That's the skeleton that holds the soft flesh of the spiritual experience. Um, that creates a, an uprightness to it. That creates a discipline to it. That creates a a, um, uh, a sincerity to it, a non self indulgence to it. So I think, I think both aspects are are important. Keep coming back to what's real. Keep coming back to what's true. Keep coming, keep transcending dead dogma, and at the same time being willing to respect the wisdom of the elders. Being willing to respect the wisdom of the past. Being willing to give the benefit of the doubt to things that might seem stuffy, that might seem a little oppressive, and, and just say, maybe this is just something I don't understand yet. Maybe there's some wisdom here.
1: Mm-hmm. It reminds me, uh, Ken Wilber is a big proponent of, uh, he says, reviewing the results of your work, or reviewing the results of your experiments, uh, whether they're in consciousness or they're in uh, more external science, in what he calls the community of the adequate. And by the community of the adequate, he means people who have already gone through the kinds of experiences you're going through. That way they can tell, they already know the major mistakes that people are going to make. And there's a truth that goes beyond uh, kind of that peak experience, again, that P-E-E-K experience when you peek into something, that when you have an extended set of relationships with it, an extended experience, you get into a, a deeper understanding of what's true. And it sounds like one of the things that the tradition offers, as the way you're describing it, is it's like this deeper wisdom of centuries, often, sometimes even millennia, of people working in these arenas and recognizing that there are common pitfalls. Yeah. And. Yeah. The tradition helps you avoid those pitfalls, helps point them out to you. And sometimes in order to do that, it seems a bit rigid, but that rigidity yeah. can yeah. be a structure that allows for the freedom. Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. If I may some, say something controversial, this is not a Buddhist point of view. This is just Adam Kutz's point well, of view.
1: Well, actually, this is great. So um, I'm going to have you hold that for just a moment. All We're right. going to take a All break. Right. We're okay. going to come back okay. and hear the controversial thing that you're about to say. Great. So great. this is Mark Michael Lewis with Money, Mission, and Meeting. We're speaking with Adam Kutz, meditation teacher extraordinaire, again, I will say it. And we'll be right back.
0: To Living Dialogues, thought leaders in transforming ourselves and our global community with Duncan Campbell, visionary conversationalist, bringing you the best in new paradigm thinking on personallifemedia.com.
1: we're back, Money, Mission, and Meaning, with Adam Coots, And Adam, you were just about to say something you said was uh, going to be a bit controversial, not necessarily yeah, yeah. Buddhist. <laughs> this is Adam Kutz speaking. Um, and I'm I'm really curious what it is. Great. Thank, Great. You.
2: Thank you. I would say that one of the things I find most obnoxious about
1: the, uh,
2: the zeitgeist of the era that we live in is people's assumption that we are cleverer than all the people that went before. I find that with a lot of uh, the writings I read on the web or in magazines or op-ed pages or just friends talking about uh, sociology and kind of the evolution of society. And I think there's a way in which our our natural sciences are, are definitely showing an evolution. We understand the natural world, physics and biology, much better than we did 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 500 years ago. However, I think on a spiritual level, on a interpersonal level there's i don't really see that that's the case and i think that um there's definitely signs that society is evolving in a really positive direction and there's signs that it isn't and i don't i don't see it clearly and simply as one way or the other but i think that being willing to say that people 50 100 500 1000 years ago might have something really valuable to teach us. I think that that's a certain mark of maturity, and something that I think the modern age could use a lot more of. My opinion alone—that's definitely not a Buddhist teaching.
1: Well, I—I I, I think, given the context of what we've been talking about, uh, that that makes a lot of sense. I—I I, I know for myself, you know, the the famous Mark Twain quote where he says, you know, I was. Uh, when I was fourteen, I I couldn't believe how stupid my father was. And uh-huh. when I was, by the time I was twenty one, it was amazing how much he had learned in that period of time. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know the the other one is you know go out when you're young and go out and make all of your fortune before um, you get old and realize that uh, you don't know everything. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And. Yeah. And there's a. I know in my own life. Another thing that she said that really struck me was that it was. It's after twenty years that you look back into the tradition, and you recognize the beauty and the wisdom that it contains. That in the beginning it was just oppressive and dogmatic, and you know, like it's out of touch and they don't understand. But there's a deeper wisdom that you can that you can appreciate because it's pointing to something that's not obvious. Yeah. and when you're pointing at something not obvious you know sometimes people retreat back into poetry they retreat into less formal uh, didactic logical frameworks because you're pointing to something that's subtle and it's difficult to get at and i yeah. think yeah. i think it is true that there's a uh an idea that well if it's not new then it can't possibly be valuable yeah and and while it's while it's different than saying it's old, therefore it's valuable. You know, oh, that, well, that's four thousand years old, therefore it must they must have insights that we don't have. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a respect that you can offer for something that's made it through the test of time to yeah. look for what's beautiful in it, and I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. I, I want to sh- shift gears one more time because you know we're talking about religion, we've talked about politics, uh, that pretty <laughs> much leaves sex.
2: Yeah. And yeah. uh
1: so I, I, wa- I wanted to ask you, you know, in, in, in your own experience with yourself and your teachers, you know there's, there are few things that have a greater t- taboo in our yeah, culture yeah. than sexuality, and yet it's such a, a, an essential part of the human experience, and whatever it is that uh, gives us life and gives us consciousness and makes us want and desire is definitely um, caught up in the sexual experiences that we have sexual desires and the, the, the challenges and the possibilities and the ecstasy of sex and consciousness are somehow uh, deeply related. And I'm wondering, in your, in your experience and with your students, what is it that meditation makes possible in terms of being able to en- actually enjoy sex or to deal with the taboos around it?
2: Yeah. Yeah, this is a good question. I there, There's a... I would say in the Buddhist tradition, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a fair amount of disagreement about the role of sexuality on the spiritual path. I think, as I said, much of Buddhism in Asia, as I understand it, um, not from first-hand experience, but from books and from listening my teacher's talk, it, it is pretty um, traditional. And part of the eightfold path is uh as i said right action and part of right action is um is uh right sexuality not harming through sexuality and the way that that is translated is a lot of different ways uh for some traditional teachers it just means you know like uh no sexuality outside of procreation within a marriage and and that he, you know, you and I live in the modern Bay Area where there's all sorts of sexual uh, freedom, and, and that sort of point of view by a Christian teacher like uh, like Pat Robertson or the Pope is exactly what people rebel against. They say that's ridiculous. So you'll you'll find strands like that in Buddhism. I mean, I've heard it said that the current Dalai Lama has said homosexuality is is uh, you know inappropriate, which which shocks a lot of American admirers of his. I, I've I haven't, I don't know if that's true but I've heard it said that, that he said that. On the other hand there were um Buddhist teachers like uh the, the wandering Zen master Ikyu who lived in medieval Japan who uh his practice was getting drunk and going to brothels and, and spreading the dharma to uh to the to the prostitutes. And his whole thing was the Dharma is everywhere. Liberation is everywhere. That uh, the truth is everywhere. That um, the moment, the the moment is everywhere. That compassion is everywhere. That it shouldn't just be restrained to the temple. That you know we we do live in the world with all of its messiness, with all of its um, with all of its uh, you know the, the color, color, yeah, the the rough side of the tracks. And so, spreading the Dharma there is as important as spreading it to. Um, to the married people. In my own life, yeah, I would say, changing subject slightly, um, so there's different traditional Buddhist teachings there. In my own life, I would say, yeah, uh, meditative practice definitely helps to enjoy sex. It helps to open my heart. It helps to have me be present, to have me be in my lived experience as in opposed to my thoughts, which all help create sexual pleasure. I'd say more than anything else, though, um, yeah, you know, Buddhism is a religion, and a lot of what Buddhism is about is about um, ethical action, it being a religion. And um, I, I find it, that it's important. You know, I am single, I'm not married, and in my dating life, I think it, it's important for me to be honest with people. It's important for me to have an open heart in my dating life, and I find that my Buddhist practice is absolutely integrated in being successful in those
1: endeavors. Does
2: that answer your question?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it does. Um, wh- part of my own experience uh, as, as my meditative practice and my own spiritual awareness has deepened through the years is that I become more and more uh, concerned with the ethical nature. Yeah. of my relationships with other people because there's this depth. There's a consideration that when I was younger, I I much more felt, okay, well, I'm me and you're you and we're different. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, if you can't handle, you know, if we're going to be together, you take care of you, I'll take care of me, and that's it. Yeah. And the, the more I allow the depth of my experience to come through, I realize how profound the connection with someone else is and how important their happiness and their health, their well-being becomes to me. And so I become in in the ethical nature of the relationship around sexuality, even around friendship, but especially around sexuality, because there's so much potent energy there. Yeah, Um, yeah becomes ever more important. And uh, I I was wondering, do you find that to be true among people who, uh, your students who are meditating, that they tend to take on a new type of, I don't know if seriousness is the right word, but respect and care and honor for that?
2: Yeah. I think most people that come to me to take my class are are already people who are conscious or are um, giving some consideration to being the best people they know how to be. And I think that they often work meditation into that or learning more about what Buddhism has to give them. And there are already people who are uh, making an effort to be careful about how they speak with people, the energy they give and receive. I uh, I have a lot of respect for many of the people in my life and many of the uh, people that come to me to take my class in terms of the... um, The ethical practice I see them having, and I will say, Mark, you know, you're a person who I I do view as a role model and and someone that I uh, have a lot of admiration for, for how you do bring a Mm -hmm. kindness and a patience and a respect in your dealing with people. I I, I do want to say something about sexuality, going back just a little bit. Um, Um, You know, I took a religious studies class in college, and they talked about ascension and descension, or uh, ascension and descent in spirituality. Ascent is, is sort of up into God. It's up into the bright white light. It's up into one. And descent is down into the many, into the mess of the world, into the truth of things. Kind of like, uh, and I think a good spiritual practice has both. It's sort of um, purifying and also embracing the mess. It's sort of like a tree has um, branches that reach out towards the sunlight and roots that sink down into the dark, uh, dirty soil. The, uh, the, the author M. Scott Peck, who wrote the book Road Less Traveled, he talked, I listened to a talk by him once where he talked about how a dragon is this international symbol, and why is it a symbol? Because he said it's a snake that flies. It's, um, it's sort of this animal that crawls on the earth and is kind of really dangerous, and yet it, it flies. It, it, it soars into the heavens. And he said that's a metaphor for the human spirit. That we both are these animals that are selfish and dirty and and uh you know, want to make money and wanna have you know, have sex regardless of the consequences. And yet there's something so beautiful in us. We do come from the divinity. There's something in the heart of us, and at the depth of our being that, that um that touches into the universal soul, that is absolutely pure. I feel this to be the case. And I think with sex, it's like, you know, when people turn on to, to their, uh, when they first awaken as sexual beings in their teenage years, there's a kind of instantaneous animal lust that we all feel, and it's we just want, I want that, you know, I want that experience. Yeah. And some people don't grow out of that. They're still 40 or 50 years old, and they're breaking their word with sex, or they're, you know, addicted to prostitutes, or whatever people have. They, they haven't mastered their lust. So I think that sublimating that into a spiritual path is learning how to say, I am an animal, and I do embrace that. I love that. You know, I am a sexual being. We're, I mean, what's a human body? It's made out of sex. You know, we, we come from the sex act, and we're anim- I don't think a person ever transcends the fact that we have that desire. And yet at the same time, we, uh, we integrate that, we purify that with our highest aspirations, which, with our highest truth. We both ascend into... Learning how to be ethical with our sexuality, we descend into really embracing our animalness. And I, there's one thing I, more I want to say about that. I think that a really um, erotic or pleasant sex act, it's got both that animal turn on. It's got both that raw lust, and it has um, it has a sense of love and open heartedness and compassion and and um, patience and presence and timing and you know. Uh, really meeting the other person, being able to look in the other person's eyes fully and be right there with it with, without shame, without holding anything back. And so I think that you have there, you know, in the, in the archetypical fully erotic experience, you have both the descent into the raw animal lust and you have the ascent into our highest nature, into our highest potentials. And so I think, yet again, like we're talking about, about mindfulness and focus, about effort and non-effort, you have that balance between our animal natures and our sort of purest, most soul natures, and um, I think a lot of the spiritual path is about finding such balances.
1: Well, that seems like a great place to end this conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Adam, (laughs) and for your your wisdom and, and for your work, the the course that you teach, and the life that you continually cultivate to be able to bring more of this into the world. I, I appreciate you taking the time to share this with our listeners.
2: My pleasure, and if I make a little plug, I, my website is intro, as in introduction, intromeditation.com, and I'm about to go live in Buddhist monasteries for two years, so it'll probably be late 2010 before I teach again. But if anybody's listening to this and is inspired, um, you know, late 2010, please check out intromeditation.com. I will be uh, leading meditation courses in the San Francisco Bay Area. So uh, it's great having you here, I mean, uh, being on your show, Mark. Um, it's, it's really wonderful to talk about these things. A lot of pleasure. I have a lot of respect for you, and um, I've, I've appreciated you giving me the opportunity to share some of these thoughts.
1: Excellent. And... Uh... I I look forward to having you back on the show after you're out of your two-year meditation retreat. I can imagine that you'll have one or two things to share.
2: Sounds awesome.
1: Okay, great. So uh, that brings us to the end of our show. I am Mark Michael Lewis uh, of RationalSpirituality.com, and this is Money, Mission, and Meaning, Passionate Work, Purpose and Play, and join us each week as we uh, explore the ideas and practices that allow us to create pleasure and profit in the business of life. For text and transcripts of this show, just go to MoneyMissionMeaning.com. That's all one word, www.MoneyMissionMeaning.com. And for other great shows on the Personal Life Media Network, visit the website at PersonalLifeMedia.com. Dot com. That's just all one word, personallifemedia.com. Talk to you next week.
0: Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.